Hello and welcome back to episode 46 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Last week, we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films, including Poor Things, American Fiction, The Boy in the Heron, and a quick summation of Aquaman 2. We also discussed the first film on my new year-long project featuring women directors, which is Ava DuVernay's Selma, and two films from James's new Christopher Nolan project. We followed that up with the latest edition of the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, with a theme of films about television. We start with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our list of great films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's the legendary 1970s satire on Network. Our hidden gem looks at a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features George Clooney's directorial debut, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Then it's the one that got away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we discuss what should have been the final film of a French comedy legend, Jacques Tati's Confusion. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we look at the belated and unloved reboot of the TV sitcom Bewitched. Next week it's the big conversation, where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First we got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Our classic recommended feature is Network, and Paul says, This was one of those movies i just never seen but always wanted to. It turned out to be just as good as I expected. It features superb performances from the likes of Faye Dunaway, Peter Finch, William Holden and Ned Beatty. What a cast. The film is a quality satire on the TV channels and how far they will go to get high ratings. The ending was very unsettling, but in keeping with the movie as a whole. Considering this film is over 40 years old, it still holds up. Lily says, An excellent piece of film history. Our hidden gem is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, and Alison says, I love faux biopics. Another good one is the Weird Al film, starring Daniel Radcliffe. Ryan says, this film reminded me of a trilogy of Hal Hartley films, Henry Fool, Faye Grimm, and Ned Rifle. I confess I haven't heard of those. They revolved around a central character who makes a series of outlandish claims, and you find out over the course of the three films whether they're true or not. That sounds interesting. I'll look at them, actually. Ricardo says, I agree, this is a really underrated film. I got it as a gift and didn't watch it for a long time because I found the cover off-putting. Eventually, I got around to watching it and it blew my mind. Our remake, Hate Watch, is Bewitched, and Sean says, the Brady Bunch movie and Starsky and Hutch were better big-screen updates of old shows. They understood the assignment. <clears throat> Deborah says, not bad enough to hate. It was just meh. Rob says, I didn't mind it. Not a bad film to watch for date night. So, some... Small amount of love for Bewitched out there. We'll also be talking about how The Running Man could be remade differently, and Damien says, yes, the original book was awesome, so a new version closer to that would be great. I hope they keep the ending, bleak as it is. Nick says, nothing wrong with the Arnie film, but the original story is good, so why not? Thanks for all your messages. We always love to hear you. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films, 
I mean, we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from Korean zombie thriller Train to Busan to Louisiana Gothic Eve's Bayou. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet, and from a steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash doublereel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we have the theme of films about television, starting with an Oscar-winning satirical drama from 1976 with an utterly scathing view of American TV and the corporations who own it. The classics and recommended feature for episode 46 is Network. So, James, um, I believe it's you haven't seen this before. I have. So, you, you did you have what was? Did you have any history with this film at all? Awareness of it in in any way? I'd only ever seen that iconic speech. I remember watching a, a video on YouTube of all the iconic speeches from films, and there was ones like the most <laughs> the most famous movie threats and the most famous movie speeches. And I just went through a period of watching all of these. And yeah, there's some pretty good ones in there. There was a good, I think it was Malcolm McDowell one, which mm-hmm. um, or no, Terence Stamp. I think it was Terence Stamp. Oh, tell him I'm coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, from the um, Limey, yeah. And there was just loads of different ones, and then the, obviously the network ones in there, and it's like I got to get mad. Um, yeah, I think if memes existed when that film came out, that would have been a very memeable oh, part that, of the that, film, wouldn't they it? Should, they should go back and do a kind of revisionist kind of meme comb through of that film because some really, <laughs> really good, uh, and it still applies today. You know, it's uh, it's a very uh, iconic memeable film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now. For for the audience, for those who haven't who haven't seen it before, the the central character, uh, played by Peter Finch, is a veteran newscaster on one of the main networks, for whom things haven't been going that great. Um, he's been a, a sort of traditional newsman for thirty odd years in the mid seventies, with an increasing sort of push for ratings and corporate control of, you know, looking at the bottom line and all of that. Um, you know, at, at this point, traditionally, news was never meant to be the profitable part of the network. It was, but it was an important part of the network. You tell people what's going on in the world. New management say, actually, if it's not making a profit, we're not interested, and they start restructuring. And Peter Finch's character, Howard Beale, stand, you know, turns up for his first uh, 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 newscast since then, and his opening statement is, "I'm leaving in a week. I've been fired or whatever. You know, they're retiring everybody, and I'm going to kill myself live on air." And everyone goes, "What the fuck?" Um, and from there, everyone tunes in to see what he's saying. But rather than kill himself, he sort of refashions himself as a kind of angry prophet, like ranting about the state of everything, which becomes quite popular and changes the way they report the news on this network. The network sees the ratings of it and, and sort of pursue that. And the news becomes this kind of bizarre sort of entertainment show instead of uh, the uh, you know the traditional kind of format of the of the of the anchor describing what's going on, go to a report. It becomes just a, a huge, like just ridiculous sideshow. And the various ins and outs of what happens next. You know there are various subplots like um, they decide to do documentaries about uh, radical leftist groups that are com- robbing banks to fund their um, their revolutionary uh, campaigns. And you know, and and it very it, it feels like the the people in you know in the revolutionary uh, movement are kind of just going along with it because they'll they'll cooperate with the network if it means publicity for for what they're doing, and it's a very sort of bleak look at everyone's kind of taking the piss out of you. Everyone is kind of up to something, every you know, and and the, the corporate control is sort of perverting the whole world. So it's. It's it's a pretty bleak look at the the nature of television, and but people generally say two things about it. You know, one, the quality of the film at the time, and how everybody kind of 
you know, how it sort of portrayed the state of the nation in 1976 when it comes out. Um, the other thing to say is how it was sort of, it prophesied everything that would come in the next 50 years of, of network and, and cable news television and all of that. Um, I was I was minded, James, to, to think back to our previous month where we were talking about the player and you talked about that as being sort of quite mild satire and I think we sort of felt like maybe the film industry didn't necessarily want to shit in its own nest and sort of bite the hand that feeds it, choose your metaphor, and absolutely slate the industry it works in. But this film doesn't hold back from slating another industry. Do you, do, do you feel that maybe films treat TV differently? You know, they'll, they'll go easy a little bit on their own industry, but they'll absolutely stick the boot into to television. Do you feel that? Or? Yeah. I think, yeah, I agree. It's, um, it does definitely kind of get looked down upon. Um, in a way, and I, I don't really know why. <laughs> I think, it, it, funnily enough, it's it, for your generation. It might be hard to kind of see this because I think t- television and film have always, you know, in in the past fifteen years, while you've been kind of sort of media aware, I would say, they've always been on a pretty kind of even footing. We've had the golden age of television, streaming, and and, and great TV shows and all that sort of thing lately. But I think when film first came out in the 1950s, it was seen as a rival and a threat to the film industry because suddenly people are staying home rather than going, rather than going out to the pictures and they, they were terrified of that. And it was seen as being kind of, you know, you go to you go to the cinema to watch great stories being told on the big screen. You sit at home and watch a small like box to watch a load of crap while they and then and then some adverts. Do you know what I mean? There was this very different perception of television back then. The assumption in the old days was that films where was where you got quality and television was just mass-produced content, I think. But I mean, but 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 I do think it's the case where you sort of go, it, they sort of, you don't often get like a character that's supposed to be clever or glamorous or smart saying, "Oh, let's sit home, sit at home and watch TV." Do you know what I mean? It's like television's just not seen as like a cool or smart thing to do on television. Um. Have you had you heard of Paddy Chayefsky, the writer of this of this um, uh, no, film? No, not at all. So he's an interesting guy. He's a three time Oscar winner. I think he's the only person who's won three Oscars for original screenplays. Um, and he actually had a background on television. He wrote a lot of TV plays, and he's 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 a screenwriter who was one of the big sort of driving forces of this film. You know, you know, it's always generally been been the case that writers are not kind of seen as a very important part of a movie, um, which is stupid because a well written film is, you know, <laughs> a lot better than a badly written film. But Hollywood is what it is. And funnily enough, he <clears throat> he's the one who, despite coming from television, is the one who's got this really scathing view of television as a medium, um, which is interesting because I think if he was alive today, he would probably have his he'd be the showrunner on like the biggest show on television, you know. He'd be he'd be he'd be doing an HBO or a Netflix like you know you know he'd be doing True Detective or something you know. Um, he wrote Marty, which was a big hit, um, which was Ernest Borgnine as like a typical New York guy, you know, trying to get it make through in life, which is a big influence on Rocky, which funnily enough came out the same year. He did a film called The Hospital, which won an Oscar, and he won an Oscar for this script. So he's like one of almost like a celebrity writer, very chippy character, and this film is kind of like his views on basically the corporations that have taken over television and ruined it, his view on politics, his view on people. It's all pretty... Um, what, what, what did you think of of, Paddy, of the, the writer's kind of attitude to people that's displayed in this film? 
that's a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't know. I know that we, we've already established that TV gets looked down on, but I think the way this film portrays it is that TV's quite powerful. Mm. Do you get what I mean? So, yeah. like, it's... It's kind of like a weird one. Like it's look. I don't know if it's looked down upon because it's like it's not seen as grand as TV as film. Sorry, but it does. It does kind of evoke the sense of like no, actually, you know, TV is important. TV's got a lot of like, you know, relevance to back then. It did not so much now, but it has that kind of you know we've got the power and the tools to do something important, and we you know we should be taking it seriously kind of thing. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the starting point of the film before everything sort of goes <clears throat> very dark and very satirical is that I think it's, I mean, this is the era of Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, just to put it in context, in 1976, this film comes out and it's a bit, it's one of those classic eras. It's a very strong, you know, middle of the decade in the 70s. You look at um, you know, the, the Oscar nominees, let's just do this. The, the Oscar nominees for 1975, let's just say, you know, what kind of you know era we're in. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. I mean, normally there's at least one clunker among the best picture nominees, and those are five absolute stone-cold classics. And in 1976, uh, you've got All the President's Men, Network, Taxi Driver, The Outlaw, Josie Wales, um, and Rocky. And Rocky wins Best Picture, and everyone's scratching their heads that All the President's Men or Network or Taxi Driver didn't. But it's a really strong year for film. But in, in that era, you've got like great journalism is like a thing. You know, the great journalists in all the president's men kind of bringing down the, the corrupt president, what, what was a thing back then. And the starting point of network here is somewhat news used to be or the television users used to be or is meant to be. It's not for profit. It's not for entertainment. It's actually where people should be getting their news and you've got a, a responsibility. Do you know what I mean? I think that's kind of I think that's sort of where I'm where I'm coming from, sort of similar to yours. And I think the starting point is that television has there's like you're saying, it has a lot of power and then sort of maybe there's a responsibility that comes with that. Yeah, no, definitely I agree. So at the same time you see the corporations coming in and taking over, you've got all of the you've got Faye Dunaway as like the new sort of manager of the network who basically doesn't give a shit about anything but ratings. You've got the aging news guy, William Holden, who ends up having an affair with her and is kind of, to me, he felt a little bit like our observer. He felt like the, the, he sort of half represented kind of the old ways that that were that were done and 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 finished with. It also sort of was maybe the audience's kind of like the person we would kind of who's the eyes we would watch the film through. What did you think of William Holden? I'm not sure you kind of knew knew much about him. No, I didn't really know much about him either. Um... Yeah, I mean, this is a interesting like perspective here because I guess you you know who Ned Beatty is and I guess you must f- sort of recognise Faye Dunaway although you probably haven't seen really any films that she's in. Yeah, I mean there was a few people that I recognised from from Network but like none of like the big main roles. I recognised the maid from Two and a Half Men. Um, yes, yes, that's right. And obviously Robert Duvall everyone knows Robert Duvall. Obviously Robert Duvall I mean he's coming off the back of Godfather and Godfather 2 I mean it's funny that like Robert Duvall isn't even the top billed person in this movie. This is fairly star studded for the time but with people who aren't stars anymore Faye Dunaway, William Holden, Peter Finch you know well Robert Duvall's still a big star but Ned Beatty um, you know that it's kind of it's it's pretty powerful it's a pretty stacked cast full of like 
not necessarily the. I mean, William Holden used to be a massive movie star, but there's some big names here that that were huge at the time. But for you, apart from Robert Duvall, this is mostly just faces, you know, vaguely familiar. But it probably more quite doesn't get in the way if you're not thinking about the star, you're just thinking about the character, right? Yeah. I mean, what did you think of the film's uh, attitude to television and attitude to politics and ratings? And because the the big thing about it is how how much does this relate to um, today? I mean, the, the the starting point is interesting. I don't know if you're aware of this, but. The woman, a woman did actually shoot herself during a news broadcast. Were you aware of that? No. It's a woman called Christine Chubbuck who in 1974, two years before this film came out, she actually shot herself while reading the news. Um, no. she, she was struggling with depression. I don't think there was any real political element to what she was doing, but she, she was very much struggling in her life. And, you know, the, the on, on the broadcast, you can hear her say, uh, she just re- she, honestly she reads the news like nothing's happening like uh, and you know the 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 dog shelter announced today that they've been struggling to get funding it's a lo- like lo- local news the mayor's going to be making an announcement on Thursday totally even keel and then she just says and now a uh, live broadcast of an attempted suicide and puts a gun to her head and shoots herself live on on television who was this when was this Christine Chubbuck was her name in 1974 wow. um <clears throat> But so it's kind of it's kind of inspired by that, and kind of inspired by this this general I think general atmosphere at the time of paranoia. Things aren't going well. The state of things isn't great. Can't trust politicians. Can't trust corporations. Television is just you know exploitation for ratings. Um, and then, but so a lot of people will sort you know the question is how how. Was this a, an overly bleak view of the world for then? And, and was this an accurate portrayal? You know, how, how much does this chime with you? Because this is all long before you're born, but it seems to predict things that then ended up happening on television. How did it come across to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the tone of it was, it was almost identical to the way I, I feel about, you know, television and the kind of media now. You know, I, I always feel like the news is always super depressing and... It's, it's like a kind of barrage, it's an onslaught and we feel like we're getting the piss taken out of us and it's, I don't think it's crazy how this film is what 48 years old now? Yeah. And it just felt like it hit everything sort of like spot on. Um, just the kind of the, the kind of piss take that we get subjected to by the news and the politics of it all and yeah, it was... Yeah, I, it was crazy watching it, and I thought, "There's no way this film was made 40 years ago." Like this is a, this is <laughs> this is like a kind of prank, you know? This yeah, is a, like a Mandela effect kind. Of, like this film, yeah, came yeah, out yeah. two years ago, didn't it? Yeah, they've made it. Yeah, like they've made it look old. They've got like they've got Paul Thomas Anderson to get some people and some yeah. settings to look like it's from the 1970s. Yeah, I, I get I get what you mean. So the only thing it it, it really had no chance of predicting was the technology, because yeah. cable cable news meant that people weren't watching just five channels anymore. Even in America in, in the 70s, you didn't have that many channels compared to today. Um, and obviously the internet and and uh, YouTube and, and well, podcasts and all the different ways that people can be, you know, making and, and consuming content. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, you've got whole news channels which are nothing but opinion, nothing but agendas, 
the corporation driving that the, the head of this corporation played by Ned Beatty basically tells the crazy anchorman what to rant about and he and he rants about it by the end of the film and that's that's basically Fox News it's GB News it's talk TV it's that one American network it is yeah. it, it is happening um it's interesting some some of the stuff must have seemed a little bit strange like you know like the um what did you think of the whole subplot about basically the communist sort of freedom fighters all being performative and as soon as someone dangles some money and publicity their way they just go along with it because they're not really that principled i mean the the actual specifics of like you know radical leftists in the 70s doesn't play but how does that seem to you about you know who you know the different kind of political arguments that are taking place today did that did did it seem to speak to the way politics plays out nowadays yeah it I definitely got the vibe that there were kind of themes or kind of people in the film that felt like they were kind of having to go along with it, if that makes sense. And this yeah. kind of same sense that today we have to, you know, I, not we, but I do, I do feel like news, news is just so toxic, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. You know, newspapers don't have to be biased, but the BBC try not to be biased. Sky News can be quite biased, but the BBC say they're not biased, but they're just a conservative mouthpiece, and Laura Koonsberg can go fuck herself. If you listen to this podcast, stop listening, go fuck yourself. Don't want you listening. Cool. Um Although I but, would be quite excited if Laura Koonsberg was listening. I, I, you know, while, agree, while, while agreeing with everything you just said, I would still be quite excited that we'd reached that far. Interview me, you fucking stupid arse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I don't know, right? Because obviously, like, I, when I watch the news now, I think there's no way these people believe what they're reporting. Like Piers Morgan, as much of an asshole as he is, he definitely doesn't believe everything he's saying. I think he's doing it because he wants the attention. He craves the attention. He knows if he says something controversial, he'll get the opinion of it. There's people like Katie Hopkins who are just pure evil and will just spout nonsense whenever they get a chance to be on the television. I know they don't really report the news like mm-hmm. Katie Hopkins and they, they're more kind of commentary. But I, I look at these presenters and I think, do you really want to just sit there, especially on the BBC when they're, they're not allowed to be biased, but the BBC don't even like tell the full story. They don't report everything. They don't give you every like angle of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, did you, how the, the, did you the, sit there the, and be the, happy with that? The BBC is meant to be impartial, but unfortunately because of its funding structure, it, it's having its arm twisted by somebody. And I think the interesting thing here is like no one owns the BBC, but because the BBC depends on the government for funding, or you know they could say, well, we're threatening, we'll change the TV license. That that threat of 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 having your funding taken away can be used to abuse that supposed impartiality. And with and with that, that's different here. But you've got a corporation which owns the TV station, and there's a whole bit where they let Howard Beale say whatever the fuck he wants, and then he starts talking about corporations selling everything off to the Arabs, which is true, but you could add the Chinese and the Russians in today. All the, well, not so much the Russians now, but it, there was a time with all the oligarchs. Um, and the minute he gets a little bit too close to them, they kind of put their foot down. So it's like it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like you're free to say what you want until you piss off the person who's holding the purse strings, basically. Yeah, biting the hand that feeds you type thing. Yeah. But, like, yeah. It's yeah. interesting what you say because I think what, what, what you've put your finger on is it, it gets referred to as the grift, doesn't it? I mean, you have people who kind of end up in that role by accident. Like, I'm not sure Lawrence Fox 
sorry to our US um, uh, listeners. I know there are a few. You were talking about people that you probably haven't heard of, and lucky they're all not, not yeah, for not having heard of them. But you've got your own equivalents over there. Lawrence Fox is I don't know. He's you know started out in a in a in a, a well off powerful acting family. You know, so he starts at the top and fights his way to the middle, and is huh. having a is having a mediocre career on ITV three or whatever, um, and decides. I don't know, for, for his profile to go on Newsnight, makes a bunch of stupid remarks. And the next thing you know, he's, you know, decided he's got a political career. But he hasn't yeah, got a political But he hasn't got a political career. He's got a media career. He's saying things to get um to get you know, to monetize the clicks and the views on the stuff that he's putting online. Which actually, even though Farage is seen as a politician, all he's doing is saying things for the clicks and the views. And it feels like without the technology, that's what, that, that was one of the things that really struck me about this. Without the idea, without even knowing that the internet was a thing or would be a thing, Paddy Chayefsky put his finger on the idea of these radical leftists, and he could have picked any kind of political group who basically say, yeah, we will you know, let you film us doing this or let you film us saying this or let you film us all this stuff, and the money will roll in from people watching what we do. He's basically predicted the political extremist grift. Do you know what I mean? He just didn't... Yeah. He, all the more impressive, they didn't have the technology like you know awareness because it didn't exist for another thirty years. Um, it's interesting to say about Howard Beale because what you said about you're pretty sure Piers Morgan doesn't believe what he's saying. The main character Howard Beale, I it's interesting and, and I'm sure this is deliberate given the, the quality of the people involved. I never felt like I entirely um, got or knew what the Howard Beale character really thinks or really feels or is really trying to do. Do you know what I mean? Has he lost his mind or does he see this as his chance at relevance? How did you, what did you think were Howard Beale's motivations for going on to be the angry sort of un, unhinged prophet for entertainment? What What did you think he was doing it for? That was the one thing I didn't quite understand about his character in this film. I couldn't quite put hit my my finger on it so i was hoping you could maybe give me an angle or like something to say on it if if i was going to guess i would say maybe he was having a bit of a meltdown but i think part of him sort of when he was losing his relevance you know and i think maybe that's why you've got the william holden character there because william holden isn't relevant anymore and he says fuck it i'm going to go and teach at a university i'll shag you know fade on away on the side and maybe I'll get a few jobs and write a book. Do you know what I mean? And he's a bit kind of depressed about the fact that his his heyday is over. But you sort of in the movie have William Holden's character deciding to just, look, it's not my time anymore. I don't agree with any of this shit that's going on, but it's not my time, you know? Um, and, you know, maybe I'm not that much better than anybody else, but he kind of, he kind of responds to it in a normal way. And Howard Beale responds to it in this... He has a meltdown because he's not going to be the star of the news anymore. He's not going to be the main news anchor on a TV network anymore. And he, he acts out. And when that gains him attention and when that gets him a job, I wonder if maybe he was just going along with it because he would rather be talking absolute shit but everybody watching than than cease to be relevant. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I, I, I thought it was interesting that the film didn't didn't ever let you get close enough to see what his motivations really were. So you kind of have to make your own mind up about it a little bit. Um, the other thing that I thought, it's, 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 it's an absolutely stacked film. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, who obviously you've seen 12 Angry Men, but have you seen yep. Serpico? Uh, yes. Dog Day Afternoon? Uh, a bit of it. And The Verdict? 
I've not seen that. No. But he's just, he's just he's incredibly versatile. He had this whole strand of films which were about like police corruption or state of the nation, which I guess network most of all falls in. But he's done a wide range of things like Equus, which was a, an adaptation of a famous play. He did an Agatha Christie adaptation murder on the Orient Express. He did all sorts of things. He's probably most famous these days for being one of the best directors never to win the Best Director Oscar. Um, another, you know, stick him up there on that shelf with uh, with Kubrick and Hitchcock, you know. Um, he was a big name director. You've got it won three of the four acting awards. Um, sorry, Faye Dunaway did win Best Actress. Peter Finch won Best Actor. Beatrice Strait won Best Supporting Actress, and Ned Beatty was only nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But um, it wins almost all the acting awards. Um, it's one of the ones that it was Rocky's year. Rocky won Best Picture in a, an absolutely baffling year for the Oscars, but that wasn't the last time. But if Network had won. You know, people who you know, people who were bigger fans of Taxi Driver would be aggrieved, but would kind of understood if this film won. You know, it was one of those real. It's a real heavy hit of film. Um, it's with all of that going on, with lots of screen time for actors, and they, they get lots of dialogue, they got lots of speeches. The one thing, I, the other thing, I wasn't entirely sure of is who do you think the main character is of this movie? Is uh, it is is it a pure ensemble? I think it's an ensemble. To be quite honest, no. Uh, because I know Peter Finch's got a big, um, big role. But but um, we've just discussed how we're, we're, how the audience is a bit distanced from him. It's not really his movie in a way. Do you know what I mean? You're kind of watching yeah. him going, "What the fuck is going on?" Then Howard Beale. That man. You've, you've got William Holden, like, but no, no one sort of, no, no one's the center of the film all the time, are they? Yeah. Did Did like, you find you've yourself? Got Peter Finch, sorry, you've got Peter Finch as Howard Beale, and then you've got William Holden as Max. Is it Shum? I can't remember the character's second name. Sorry, Schumacher. That was it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you've got you've got far too. It's one of those ones where you've just got far too many, you know, prominent actors and you know characters to just go. It, it's interesting because um, Beatrice Strait wins Best Supporting Actress for playing William Holden's wife, and she's on screen for like no more than seven minutes. And she wins the Oscar based really on one big scene between her and William Holden, where she, you know he's he's leaving her, and they you know, uh, and she ha- gives this extraordinary speech. Palachowski just sat down at the typewriter and said, "I am writing this character a fantastic speech." Ned Beatty's nomination for like best supporting actor was very similar. There's that extraordinary scene in the boardroom where he just starts like blistering away at at. Uh, at uh, uh, Peter Finch for like saying the wrong thing on on the show and, sh- and explaining him to how things work. There are no countries. There are no there are no politics. There's only companies and profit and loss. And it's like it, he feels like he's like the 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 voice of the uh, of of the writer at that moment. So every, everyone <clears throat> everyone has their big moment. Um, did you did you sympathise with any of these characters more than the others? Did you? <clears throat> did you follow any of these storylines more than the others, or did you? Were you just observing with the writer? Look at the state of the world. Yeah, I think I think that was the kind of point of having all of these, you know, big names, big characters, um, in the film is that you don't just focus on one of them. You think, Christ, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got you have to kind of take it all in and try and listen to or follow everyone's story. And, and it's partly, I guess, that you have a narrator, don't you? So the, the the fact that you have a narrator kind of saying, and then this happened and that happened, and Howard Beale was doing that. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's kind of maybe maybe the maybe the main character of the show is the narrator. <laughs> maybe the yeah. narrator is telling you the the state of things. You know, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, good film. Agree. Um, yeah, very good film. It was yeah. I mean, it's really strong, stacked cast, some tremendous speeches. They don't make him like this anymore, and it, it's. In, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm pleased that someone who, you know for whom this film was well before their time that you found this film very sort of current and relevant still. I mean. That's. It's not a good thing that it is that relevant in the sense that it means that things have really gone to shit. But cinematically, this film really, really lives on, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's just at that kind of era where films in the seventies translate a lot better to, than films in say the fifties and sixties. There's a cutoff point, isn't there? Just a little bit. I mean, there's still like the the French Connection definitely looks a bit dated, but Jaws still stands up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we've we slagged Rocky a little bit for winning Best Picture there, but I, I do love it. The, th- the funny thing about Rocky is that Rocky represents part of uh, another strand of what was going on in the seventies. A lot of stuff going on in the seventies. People are like really, um, you know, while all the president's men is like celebrating great journalism, it's also saying, "Look at the state of politics. The president's a crook." Do you know what I mean? And there's a lot of you know taxi driver. Look how alienated everyone is. And Rocky was kind of the other side to that, you know, because like the biggest show on television was Happy Days, where you're going to like you know think looking back to the nineteen fifties when everyone had a normal family kind of thing which is bullshit, but you know what I mean? People were looking back nostalgically and Rocky was almost a 50s throwback. Funnily enough, a 50s throwback to Marty, a film that Paddy Chayefsky wrote because this kind of he's this kind of simple-minded underdog who makes it because he's got a pure heart. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and it's almost it's almost the story of the 70s that with all of these these films that accurately portray how shit things were, the film that people wanted to kind of give the most love to was the one that just made them feel good for once when everything else seemed like it was fucking terrible, huh. you know? Which which is why Rocky won, which is why a lot of Best best Picture Oscar winners win, really, because it's a case of, you know, they'd rather watch Rocky have a, an arsehole for a brother-in-law and a bit of a, a, a tough life and everything else, but kind of make you feel good at the end, where, as opposed to Network, which just says, yeah, this is all fucked and it's only going to get more fucked. I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's just kind of, it's really bleak. It's just like, there's no respite here, is there? Yeah, <laughs> it and, is quite bleak. Yeah, and we, it's, with a lot of 70s films, we we can look back and kind of enjoy the quality of the filmmaking. With Network, I think we enjoy the quality of the filmmaking, but you also kind of go, yeah, he really put his finger on something as well, didn't he? And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we continue our theme of films about television based on the actual memoir of a real-life TV executive who made unbelievable claims about being a spy. Despite being the directing debut of a big star and based on a script by the writer of the moment, it didn't really find an audience at the time. The Hidden Gem for episode 46 is Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Uh, so, James, this film comes out in 2002. You pro- almost certainly won't have seen it at the time, but had you seen it before we nominated it for this podcast? No, uh, no, I hadn't. What did, what did you heard about it? You know, was it in your consciousness as part of the as part of the kind of the film discussion at all? Or? Strangely, I had no idea that this film existed. When I saw that it was George Clooney's directorial debut, I was surprised to see that it was relatively... Early on in his career, I want to say he was probably nearly forty, which I know isn't like. I'm not saying like he's seventeen but, years old trying to direct a film, but, but in terms he, of but, actors but, trying to translate or trying to kind of 
go to directing, usually they do it a bit later on. And and his he he, he came to Stalin quite late. I mean, he he's a big he's trying and f- not doing that successfully well on film and TV in the in the eighties, um, early nineties. Doesn't quite land for him until he gets a part on ER, which is a, a huge hit. And he translates that success on television with ER, where he becomes, you know, the you know, real matinee idol, leading man type, into a movie career. He does a film with uh, Robert Rodriguez and Tantino from *Dust Till Dawn*. So he's, and that's in 1996. So he's only been a big actor. He's only been a movie star, as it, as it were, for six years. And he tries his hand at directing. And like you say, often directors, <clears throat> a lot of directors who decide to, a lot of film actors who decide to direct, they do it after a lot longer than that. Do you think it's just because he always had an ambition to direct? Um, or do you think it just just happened? You know that way you can tell when a a, a football player is either going to become a pundit or a manager? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's certain actors that you can tell are going to be, you know, you know, directors. Yeah, I know and what you I mean. And I think George Clooney's probably one of them. You just kind of get that impression of whereas... Maybe Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, they are much more just kind of, they, they enjoy the kind of acting aspect of it and maybe doing other projects outside of film or producing that kind of stuff. But I, I'm not surprised that George Clooney's dipped his, uh, dipped his toe in a bit of directing. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing about this is obviously Charlie Kaufman was like a, you know, a sort of very successful writer at this time. I think he's already, he's already won an Oscar. Um, or, or, or he's not far off winning an Oscar for his writing. Um, he's on this run where he's done Being John Malkovich. He's just done Adaptation or about to do Adaptation. Um, he goes on to do Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. He is seen as an absolutely sort of genius writer. Uh, and it was him who wrote the script based on on this book. And I think George Clooney came into this project. I think he kind of seized an opportunity when somebody else dropped out. But it all kind of landed in in, in, in a good way, really. Um, I don't know if you're aware of uh, George Clooney's family background. Not really, no. George Clooney's the son of Nick Clooney, yeah? Okay. And Nick Clooney was a a news anchorman, television host. Right. George Clooney's aunt is Rosemary Clooney, who is a singer and actress who uh, had lots of hit songs and then became an entertainer on television. So George Clooney grew up in TV, which probably gives you a hint as to why he also directed that film Good Night and Good Luck, where... You know, the news anchor man is the hero of the story, standing up in a principled way to... Um, have you seen that with David Strathairn? Uh, no, I don't think it's so. It's based on the true story of a news anchor man who stands up to, to the witch hunts, basically. Um, the McCarthy witch hunts. So he's not like your typical like uh, film-based you know, TV hater. He actually grew up in television, and I think he respected his dad's job as a, a, a good old-fashioned anchor man of the, of the old school. Um, but obviously he was fascinated, I think, by a, a main character in a story who was a TV executive and TV host, Chuck Barris. So this is, with huge caveats and in inverted commas, based on a true story, or it's about a real person, let's say, Chuck Barris. Were you aware of him? Nope. The interesting thing about him is he's someone else who kind of prefigured like multiple decades of television that came after him. Um, the first, the first time I even had any sort of awareness of this sort of thing, I was hearing a story from your granddad, my dad, about he had us. He was he was flying home to the UK when he was quite young. This is like maybe the late sixties, early seventies, maybe early late sixties actually. And he's on a stopover in Miami because back then it direct flights were hard to do, especially from some of the places he was living. And 
he's got a few hours or an overnight stay in a hotel in Miami with nothing to do but watch TV. And the TV comes on and this show, The Dating Game, comes on where, a, a, you know, one person, young person sits there, you know, saying, what you know, what would you do if you're on a date with me? And you get a bunch of inane responses and it's cheesy as hell. And my dad, he telling me this story, he remembers thinking to himself, well, British TV is pretty crap, but at least we don't have this. Uh, but hey, presto, before too long, we did have that. Our version of it was called Blind Date, which was a British institution. And he also did a show called The Gong Show, which was a talent show. But the idea was is that the all the contestants are absolute idiots and useless. Um, and the entertaining thing was watching them get like pelted with things and then hit with a gong, get off. And he basically prefigured that part of, you know, American Idol and Britain's Got Talent and X Factor and all of these shows. Half of that show is the kind of manufactured gladiatorial, like emotional manipulation that comes with the, the, the people who can sing or do have some talent that can do the, can do the dancing and them competing. But like the first half of any of those series is, is laughing at the people who, who tried anyway, even though they were useless. Well, he basically made an art form of that with his film, The Gong Show. And he did like quite a lot of these really cheesy, bad, but very successful um, quiz shows. And then as as it's portrayed in this in this film, his career's stalled a little bit. He's, he's struggling to, you know, people have maybe had enough of his kind of poor quality content. His ideas aren't doing very well. He's falling out um, the, uh, you know, falling out of favour. He kind of has a bit of a breakdown, holds up in a hotel and writes an autobiography in which he claims he was a spy for, for the CIA the whole time that he was his TV host, including out, including carrying out assassinations. And when he was going on blind date, like um, the dates, like acting as chaperone for the young couple, that's why they'd always go to places like Prague and Berlin. And he would slope off and kill somebody for the CIA and then come back and like help, you know, chaperone the, the two dates having dinner wildly outlandish claims um firstly did you think any of the, the his claims about being in the cia were true um it, it seemed so far-fetched that you almost couldn't believe that it was true but you can never tell do you know what i mean what about you did you think it was <sighs> I got to say, the whole CIA storyline in this is a lot of fun, because he goes across to East Berlin and he meets a fellow assassin played by Rutger Hauer, who is terrific. Amazing. Yeah. Um, he, you know, George Clooney is his kind of as the world weary sort of CIA contact. Um, Julia Roberts is the other agent who kind of seduces him, and then you know, uh, you know, maybe there's more going on between them. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to spoil the plot, even though I don't necessarily believe any of it happened. I find it hard to believe it happened. I think, I, I, for me, the story is that someone who was a successful TV host or, you know, a TV executive and had all of those things happening would publicly claim that. He wrote this autobiography and everyone went, what the fuck's going on with this guy? I feel like that's the story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I don't know if it's because I'm so used to British TV presenters, like, I couldn't imagine Eamon Holmes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's it's all like, I can think of. <laughs> I mean, I, I know his shows are not seen as, like, you know, the you know downgrading the quality of television, but but Richard Osman is a TV host and also a producer who's invented formats of lots of game shows. 
And I know people generally think his shows are quite clever and quite fun. You know, Richard Osman's House of Games is, you know, you know, pointless, so like good stuff and everything. But it is a little bit like someone like that just having this massive meltdown and claiming, do you know what I mean? It's very, very weird. Um, yeah. if, if he did make it all up, why do you think he did it? Do you think he was just having a breakdown? Did you, what do you think is going on in the head of this guy? I don't know. I didn't fully get the impression he was doing it for, you know, the attention and the kind of, I don't know, trying to sell a kind of story. You know what I mean? Like, the reason people would make this kind of nonsense up. Mm-hmm. Like, to try and benefit or profit from it. I didn't get that at all. So maybe, yeah, maybe he was having a mental breakdown or it was just like, maybe it started as like a kind of small white lie and it just grew arms and legs. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, did you enjoy Sam Rockwell's portrayal of the character? Yeah, I love Sam Rockwell. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know... Again, I think because George Clooney is, you know, is who he is, he managed to get a pretty strong cast together for this. Sam Rockwell, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Drew Barrymore, Rutger Hauer. What did, what did you think of Drew Barrymore as the girlfriend slash wife of the main character? Drew Barrymore's a weird one, isn't he? Because she's obviously very talented. And I th- wonder how her career might have looked if she hadn't started so early and had such troubles because she started so early. Mm-hmm. Like, it's famous that, you know, she was in media from, like, what, the age of something ridiculous, like seven, wasn't it? it was really yeah, young. really young. I mean, I think she was six when she was in E.T. kind of thing. Or, yeah, so... Yeah, but, but very young, yeah. So, like, from that, that's obviously going to... That's hard for anyone to try and kind of deal with. So, yeah. I wonder. I, 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 I felt good like, in this. I, yeah, yeah, I thought she was good. I felt like the character was a bit thankless. I don't think it's she is. It, it is a little bit of the classic um, girlfriend role. I think earlier on her character's got a bit more going on because she's she's like a she's like a hippie. She's quirky. Do you know what I mean? She's like um, the reason uh, Chuck likes her is because she's not like anyone else. But over time, over the course of the film, she's eventually just a person who sits at the sidelines fretting over the state of Chuck Barris. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, interesting. Quick quick bit of, bit of, bit of background. Um, uh, it was going to be directed by Jim McBride in the late 80s, who we talked about. He's most famous for a film called Breathless, and he was going to do a film of the, co- of the comic book character, uh, Electra, which never happened. Um, he, he, the, he dropped out. Um, they, they wrote. They got Kaufman to write a script in the late nineties. He was kind of the writer of the day, um, and a number of directors were linked to the project. Uh, David Fincher, Brian De Palma, Brian Singer were all linked with directing it. Okay. Uh, interesting mix of people who were considered to play the lead before Sam Rockwell got the job: uh, Mike Myers, Ben Stiller, Johnny Depp. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I like I like Ben Stiller, um, and I can see his particular brand of guy who's not comfortable with who he is, like w- would work. But I think I think the the right guy got the role in the end. Yeah, I mean Johnny Depp would have just made it far too kooky. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like yeah, that would have that would have made it weird. Mike Myers, I enjoy, and I've enjoyed certain roles that he's played that haven't just been him dressing up in a fat suit or. Mm-hmm. You know, doing loads of different kind of characters like Eddie Murphy style. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
I, I think Vince. people would have struggled to accept Mike Myers in this role. I think there's because there's there's an, there's an element to this character that's very comedic, which I think Mike Myers would have been very good at. But then people would have just gone, "Oh, this is just a comedy," you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and that's uh, no no offense to Mike Myers. I think that's why Mike Myers has gone and he's in Inglorious Bastards and all of these other films of Bohemian Rhapsody and heavy makeup because he almost feels like that's the only way he gets to do anything other than be Austin Powers. Do you know what I mean? I yeah. totally understand why he does that. Um, but I think in this, it would become the Mike Myers show through no fault of his, if you see what I mean. Uh, it was interesting what you said about Ben Stiller because I think he would have been good for this kind of character because Ben Stiller definitely seems like the type of guy who would just say something as like a joke mm-hmm. and then it ends up he's he's been spying for the CIA. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, definitely. I mean, Sam Rockwell, I think, is probably the perfect kind of... just. The perfect kind of guy actor, do you know what I mean? Like, he's, I think- he's got that sort of quirky element to him where when he's trying to present, because he was previously, he was always just the, the the producer and then he hosted the gong show himself. And in the movie, when you see him kind of nervously sweating under the lights and kind of not knowing what to say next, you kind of go, yeah, and that, that, fate, that face he's got. And then a minute later, because he's feeling really paranoid, he pulls a gun on the unknown comic behind the curtain. He's like, he's just got it absolutely spot on, hasn't he? Um, what's your relationship with the films of Charlie Kaufman, the writer, being John Malkovich? Uh, I've not actually seen being John Malkovich. Um, but what, what did you think of like the idea that, you know, someone accidentally stumbles on this like strange like room where if you, if you go into it and, and go through the hole, you find yourself inside the body of John Malkovich and it becomes a thing mean, that yeah, everybody wants to do. That's a great idea for a film. He's, he's, he's full of these hooks. Like Adaptation is about a, a writer. He had writer's block. He was trying to adapt a film called the or- a book called The Orchid Thief, which is nonfiction into a film, and he couldn't do it. So instead what he did was he wrote a book about a writer failing to adapt the film Orchid Thief um, and invented an, a, a, um, a, fictional, um, a fictional twin brother who was a more successful writer than he was. He's just—he's got this, you know, amazing imagination. In Eternal Sunshine of the Spotlight, Spotless Mind, I think it's his masterpiece. Although he goes on to direct his own films, which I'm less struck by. I think he decided, like a lot of writers, that he wanted to be in control of his writing. But I feel like his best work is when he sort of landed with a, a director that he that worked for his material. Um, for this one, he wasn't keen on the way George Clooney did things because he was expecting to be on set and if there was something that needed to change or there was like a story problem or whatever, that like he would be able to collaborate with the director and George Clooney didn't do that. I don't know if that's an experience on George Clooney's part or just the way George Clooney operates, but uh, Charlie Kaufman felt frozen out and I think that's probably one of the reasons why he started doing his own stuff after this, like directing his own work. Did you like the script? Did you like the, the angle of the film? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I, I I enjoyed the kind of story it was trying to tell. Yeah, I think I think what what I enjoy is I think obviously it lets the kind of spy stuff play out. You actually see the spy stuff, so you don't just go, "Oh, he." You know, it's not a film. It is a film about him claiming that this this, this happened, but the way they do that is they actually show you it happening. So, so it's it's almost like saying, "Let's just assume. Let's just imagine for a second that this is true." So let's see Chuck Barris 
going on a mission for the CIA and assassinating people. Let's see how that plays out. And the whole story does play out the way his spy career, like, you know, it sort of resolves itself and what happens to his other spy, like, associates. And that's very vivid. It's a lot of fun. There's some great stuff at the end with him and Julia Roberts, which I don't want to spoil, but it's really, it's kind of classic. Like, it, it might be sort of maybe um, uh, cliched spy stuff, but it, it works really well, I thought. But I thought what was really interesting, the way the film starts, and if you notice this, the way the film starts is the real-life people who worked with Chuck Barris, and those are the real people, by the way, um, who were actually on the show, worked with them on the Gong Show. That's the real unknown comic. These are the real kind of real colleagues of Chuck Barris being interviewed, saying, well, he was like this, he was a bit quirky. Yeah, he had some demons, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you see is him standing naked in his hotel room with a full beard, looking completely strung out. And then it tells the story of him claiming that all this stuff happened. So it's kind of Charlie Kaufman's starting point for the movie is this guy got to a bit of a weird place, didn't he? Yeah. How did you, what did you think of George Clooney, the director? Did, did, did his, did, did his personal stamp come through as much as you thought? Not really, because obviously it's, it was his first film, so it's hard to establish what your kind of stamp is going to be when it's your Mm -hmm. first film. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he necessarily did a bad job. What it reminds me of is when Angelina Jolie did her first film, which was Unbroken. Mm-hmm. Um, and that film wasn't bad, but there wasn't anything in it that made me think, "Oh, that shot was brilliant," or that kind of un- that you know continuous yeah. take or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like it was. I think he he didn't do a bad job. He obviously got you know good performances out of out of the actors, but. Yeah, I didn't think, oh yeah, this yeah. is going to be the start of, you know, a, a long Oscar winning career. Yeah, I mean, on, on the whole, this film got, I mean, quite good reviews. Um, there was some criticism of George Clooney's direction to suggest that he was maybe like trying a bit too hard. Because you've got, you know, it, it's inserts of like real life talking heads talking about Chuck Barris and cuts to different parts of the story going on in different ways. Um, but, I mean, it generally gets a good review, Roger Ebert liked it, all the big reviewers liked it. On... However, um, it only made $33 million worldwide on a $30 million budget, so it, it was basically that. a flop. I mean, why do you think this didn't land with with an audience? Um, I think the kind of story of it isn't entirely... It's not like I kind of put the bums in seats, mm. so to speak. Um, you tell me Sam Rockwell plays, you know... An, and kind of news presenter, man in the media, you know, talk show host, whatever you want to call it, and he says he's he was part of the CIA. Like you think, okay, that's fun. Maybe works better as a TV show. But today, that would be like a kind of Netflix exclusive kind of film. Do you know what I mean? It would be released on streaming, and you'd watch it that way. I think yeah. so. Maybe it's one of those ones. I don't know how they managed to spend thirty million on it. Yeah, I, I I wonder if that is you know you get one of the big writers of the day to write a script and then you and then you get a parade of directors in who all probably get paid for their time working on it and then and then George Clooney comes in and a bunch of very very big name actors in in almost every role. It's I mean, do you think maybe the only thing wrong with this film was it was made for thirty million, not five? Yeah, because it's got a big indie feel, hasn't it? I I mean, I love this film. 
but it's got a real kind of quirky indie feel. And for me, it's like, well, it's not, you know, it's not my money. They didn't spend my money on the film and I can watch and enjoy it when I want. I've got this on the shelf. So it doesn't fucking bother me whether they made any money or not. Do you know what I mean? But it feels like, so I can enjoy the fact that Julia Roberts is playing a spy. You know, someone as big as Julia Roberts has essentially got a, a, not a huge supporting role in this movie. But it, it's, it's a little bit lavish, isn't it? And if they'd made this movie for five million, still was still with Sam Rockwell in the main role, it would have it would have the money that it ended up making. It's it's almost as if this found the size of audience it was always going to find, and maybe they just shouldn't have gone thrown so much money at it. Maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. It does have an indie feel, but it's got a, not a massive budget, but a hefty budget, way more than you would expect for an indie film. Yeah, I think a more experienced director, or you know, if, if it got off the ground first time and, and and stayed you know stayed low it, it might have people would have looked at that that revenue and gone hey nice work everyone hey george you can direct what do you want to do next but i i still enjoy this film i think this is definitely one to seek out i think it's a lot of fun and it's ba- basically the, the hook is a real life tv show host responsible for you know what was seen as some of the worst kind of you know downgrading of television at the time wrote an autobiography claiming that he was a hitman for the cia Whatever with Sam Rockwell in the lead role, whatever you think you're going to get watching that film, that's what you get. So if you haven't seen it and that that appeals to you, I think you should watch it because you know you can disagree if you want, but I think this film delivers what it says it's going to. Yeah. So so that's Confessions of Dangerous Mind on our hidden gems. Uh, I think we kind of I think we I think we know why it wasn't a huge hit, but I think we also know why if this is your bag, this will if this kind of film is your bag, this will work for you. And I like a spy movie, and I think this works as a spy movie, even though it's not really about that. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the big screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month, we look at a giant of French cinema who was not as well known outside his native country, who after a number of financial troubles made an unsuccessful attempt to make one last classic. The one that got away for episode 46 is Jacques Tati's Confusion. So James, I think we're down the rabbit hole here a little bit. I don't think Jacques Tati is necessarily someone that you'd had a lot of knowledge of before we started here. Absolutely not. Yeah, you'd be correct. So I think the reference point for you and I think for a lot of people at home, I mean, I didn't know a lot about him either, I have to say. I kind of knew his work. I'd seen I'd seen clips of his work and everything. And then I went and watched some of his films for this because I think this is quite a fascinating story. Do you remember when you were, I can't remember how old you were, you weren't that old, we went to see a film called Mr. Bean's Holiday? Yes. So Mr. Bean is obviously Rowan Atkinson's kind of non-verbal wordless comedy character and his two big inspirations for Mr Bean were Charlie Chaplin as you might expect and Monsieur Hulot which was Jacques Tati's comedy character in in France and Mr Bean's Holiday is a big tribute to the, the famous film called Monsieur Hulot's Holiday now the plots play out very differently, but it's all based around the idea this central slapsticky non-verbal character goes on holiday and causes mayhem. 
Now, Mr. Bean's Holiday is not a remake of that. It goes down a very different route. But there's a reason why it's called Mr. Bean's Holiday, as opposed, you know, and, and it sounds like Monsieur's Holiday. And there's a reason why it takes place in France, because it's kind of Rowan Atkinson's tribute to Jacques Tati. So does that give you a little bit more of like a, a, a an ability to grip where the original, where like Jack, Jack Tati and his Monsieur Hulot character may have been coming from? Yeah, yeah. So unlike Mr. Bean, Monsieur Hulot, was, he's a slightly different character because, you know, Mr. Bean's kind of, it's almost like a very childlike figure, yeah? Um, he's like a man-child. He's kind of kind of innocent, you know? There's moments where he's a little bit selfish and he kind of grabs things that he shouldn't have or does stuff that he shouldn't do. But there's a certain childlike innocence to Mr. Bean. Monsieur Hulot's like different. He's he's equally innocent as Mr. Bean, but in a different way. He's like he's like your he's like a hopeless middle aged uncle. Do you know what I mean? And in fact, Miss um, you know, Jacques Tati for what's in a film called Mon Oncle, and he's like the idea of Jacques Monsieur Hulot is this kind of slightly hapless guy who doesn't really have any friends in his first film the holiday he pitches up at this resort it's a nice beach in on the west coast of france where everyone goes for their holidays and when he pitches up um he causes mayhem because he you know he knocks stuff over or he, he turns up he starts listening to music and annoys everybody so you can kind of see where the germ of the idea for mr bean came from but he, he does it slightly differently because what what that film monsieur Hulot's holiday actually is it's like a cross-section of 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 society on a holiday and you spend as much time watching all the other holiday makers as you do watching Monsieur Hulot. So you have the through line of Monsieur Hulot's kind of classic stuff like this girl leaves her, needs help carrying her rucksack back to the, her, her hostel and he gallantly helps to carry it and it turns it's all the way up a hill in this really weird shack and he has, you know, he starts, he falls over about five times helping her and it's all completely innocent but he's kind of has all his set pieces. But what you're actually seeing is Here's how the young people, backpackers, would go on holiday. Here's how the posh people in their nice cars would go on holiday. Here's what the different sections of society think of each other and how they treat each other. So actually, if you wanted to know what it was like going on a holiday in the 50s, especially in France, you could watch that and it's almost like a documentary, just funny. And it's weird because he's doing this in 1953. He's not like a nine, he's not like a 1920s silent character like Charlie Chaplin. He's doing this in the 50s. And even more kind of interestingly, although he's at least a generation older than the rest of the French New Wave people like um, Jean-Luc Godard and Francois Truffaut, they love Jacques Tati. They kind of reject everyone else of the previous generation of French filmmakers, but not Jacques Tati. They love him because they, his, his films are pure visual cinema and they're very, very clever kind of... Uh, just portraits of what French society is at any given time, and they take the mickey out of the social order. So these young film directors, like Jacques Tati, is their hero. And in 1967, he takes it one step further with a film called Playtime. And this this is... It'd be interesting for you to imagine what it'd be like if Mr. Bean had tried something like this for a movie. In Playtime, this is set in, made in 1960s, and it's set in the near future... And they built this big steel set to make look like the Paris of the future. And everything's auto automated. Everything's mechanical. You don't make a cup of tea by yourself. You press a button and it makes one for you. And Jack Tati's Zulo character comes in and trips over everything and falls foul of it. An American tourist. He's trying to meet up with an American tourist. And they keep getting stuck because all of Paris looks the same now. And all of these machines go wrong. And it was kind of a comment on how the world, how the modern world was changing too fast. And how like you couldn't just be like an ordinary old bloke like Monsieur Hulot turning up. Everything's automated and impersonal. Um, kind of like Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. And 
everybody, it was loved, right? Francois Truffaut said, this guy's making cinema on a different planet to everybody else. So this guy is like hugely respected and he, he's really meticulous. I mean, he built the sets. He spent so much money building the sets that this was like the most expensive film in France. That it, it cost as much money as like big movies in, in America at the time. It could never make its money back, but he made a really good film. And he, um, so he kind of was this like, even though he's like a, a, a jerky comedy slapstick figure, he's actually being respected by some of the more kind of upscale art house directors of the day and making this film, which is a comment on, on modern life. I mean, can, can you imagine like Mr. Bean being like a social commentary? Can you imagine if Mr. Bean, instead of him going to France for Mr. Bean's holiday, he goes to like the Canary Islands or, or Spain and you see Mr. Bean interacting with a bunch of British holidaymakers acting like normal British holidaymakers and like fights over sunbeds and stuff. Can you, can you, can you imagine him being a vehicle for social commentary? Um, in a sense, um, it's not uncommon, I suppose, for kind of slapstick kind of comedy um, storytellers or stories to kind of talk about more serious issues or mm. things like that, like... I don't know why, but Bertolt Brecht comes to mind. Uh, do you know about him? Yeah. So I know he's not really, a, he's obviously much more of a stage person. Yeah, theatre of alienation much, and all that, yeah. He was very much into his kind of telling things in funny ways and he would talk about, you know, very serious, you know, kind of issues, but he was doing it, you know, kind of in daft ways. So yeah, that, it definitely works. Yeah, it's like, I mean, similar to, from a similar genre, although it's a different writer, Beckett's Waiting for Godot. One time they got Rick Maley and Adrian Edmondson to main, make to play the main characters in Waiting for Godot to play up the absurdist comedy element of it. Huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so Jacques Tati's this interesting guy. He's a massive perfectionist, similar to Chaplin, John Cleese, Peter Sellers, you know, agonises over every detail of his films. Just wants to entertain, but he has these interesting social commentary. And this is a big thing in France at the time. In the 60s, there was this element of everything's getting Americanized. Yeah. A lot of anti-American sentiment in France at the time. Everything's getting too impersonal, all of these class structures. And it's weird because if you go to if you go to the section of Paris known as La Défense now, where they built basically their version of Canary Wharf, it looks exactly like Jack Tati's sets. So he predicted exactly what these skyscrapers were going to look like. Hmm. And, you know, there's some great stuff where, like, basically the, he's always taken a mickey out of the, the higher-ups in society, which is why I think the, you know, Godard and Truffaut liked him. Because there's this posh, upscale people in, in Monsieur Euler's Holiday who always look down on him. And the characters that you like in Monsieur Euler's Holiday are the ones who make friends with him. And then in Playtime, you've got this posh character who's kind of basically making his maid make the tea with this new machine, which doesn't work. Kind of similar to when Mrs. Doyle gets the tea-making machine and Father Ted doesn't like it. But this this machine's going wrong and the maid's worried about being electrocuted. So he uses these farcical set-piece situations to kind of criticise. There's this whole bit in playtime where there's just rows and rows of cubicles where people work. And again, that's that's what that's what offices look like now. Um he had he spent money, he borrowed money, playtime is wide, you know, hugely successful. Well, would have been hugely successful if it had cost a normal amount of money, but it cost a huge amount of money. So it didn't, you know, it lost money and he got into trouble with the tax man and all these sorts of things. His films were actually impounded. So for 10 years, he's working where he can to try and get, get his films back and get another chance. But 10 years later, this is where confusion comes in. He, he gets something together to make another film. And this is going to be, this was going to be made in 1976. And it's about a, a, a TV station in France 
And one of the ideas he had was that Monsieur Hulot was going to be the main presenter on a TV station who gets shot live on the air. And I find that so interesting that the year that Network comes out, you've got Jacques Tati doing, trying to do a farcical version of a very, very similar story. And in his version, it's not going to be quite so scathing, but it is going to be poking fun at, at, um, at society, poking fun at the way Ameri- French television and culture has become Americanized, become globalized, um, how people are sitting there watching television instead of going for a walk, all of those things, right? Uh, just, to, just to make it even more kind of quirky, right? Um, he hired or was collaborating with the, the American rock band Sparks to be in the film. Now, are you aware of Sparks? This is so far before no, your time. No, not at all. Are you aware of the the song, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us? Not really, no. Okay, so that was like a big hit like for us. And it, 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 it was two brothers called the Male Brothers. And one of them was kind of sang in this like very, very theatrical falsetto voice bounding all over the stage. And his brother stood behind a keyboard playing, you know, playing the tunes with a Charlie Chaplin moustache or a Hitler moustache, take your pick, looking like he was about to kill someone. He had this really angry look in his eye. So this really quirky band, right, whose films, whose, whose songs and videos were all kind of very cinematic, were going to play the um, the American TV executives who'd come over to France to try and help them make, like, um, TV the way the Americans do it, and everything falls apart over there. And they were quite a big band back in the day. So it's really weird that it, the, the film does, doesn't happen because he doesn't get the money together. I think possibly it's because he wanted to kill off Monsieur Hulot. So he wasn't going to give the public what they wanted anyway. Um, but it's so weird that he would do something which was, he was thinking along the same lines as Paddy Chayefsky across the ocean, who's doing network. Although in, you know, in, in, in much more in his own style. And he was going to get this rock band to play American uh, uh, TV executives in it, and to to talk about the state of French culture at the same time the network was talking about American culture. That's what I found really interesting about this. I mean, can, I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, can, what 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 would your reaction be if you found out there was an unmade Mr. Bean film that Rowan Atkinson was trying to get off the ground in this sort of style? Yeah, I'd be very surprised because Mr. Bean's never really tried to tell anything. No, Ron Ro- Atkinson's not really. Yeah, Ron Atkinson doesn't really want to do that kind of thing. But it's kind, it's kind, it's kind of weird um, that this would happen at the same time. And you know, it, it, it's hard to kind of put together. There is, there is a, a script. You can, you can buy a script online, but it's two hundred quid. I'm not spending two hundred quid on a fucking script of a film that didn't get made. Fuck that. Especially because the way Jacques Tati worked was. The script would be just a general outline, and then he would put together lots of set piece scenes. Do you know what I mean? The woman trying to use a an automated tea maker that's going wrong. Um, the, the 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 American tourist and and the the French sort of bumbling Mister Bean character keep trying to meet each other and keep getting separated for, for a range of comedy reasons. But it was going to be comic misunderstandings, language barrier, cultural difference to the USA, practical set pieces around things going wrong in the TV studio with the cameras and the cables and everything else. And it would have looked at TV in France at the time. The thing that would have been interesting is that France, um, the, the the media was under state control in France in the 1970s, and that only changed about 1980. So all the content on television was government approved. So I would expect that Tati would have had a commentary on that as well, you know, about how, you know, there would have been a guy from the government telling you what you could show and what you couldn't show on the air. The thing that's interesting to me and, and uh, you know, uh, that there's not a lot of other meat on the bones here. So, it, you know, it is what it is. But 
what I found interesting in this is um, this is made in the 70s or was going to be made in the 70s and it was and was a look at the state of things in the same way the network was a look at the state of things. And the the prevailing view in all of these films, we've talked about them, all the President's Men, Taxi Driver, Network, um, you know, the previous year um, was uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and a couple of years later you get um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. These films are actually very, very critical of the current state of affairs. You can't trust the government. You can't trust corporations. Everything's paranoid. Everyone's alienated. The streets aren't safe. All of this. But my my generation looked back on the 70s with a lot of nostalgia. You know, when I was at uni and then for a couple of years afterwards, club nights going out were like, it was car wash. It was like there was loads of 70s nights and people are kind of, you know, dressing like it's the 70s to, to go out. Uh, the films of the day seen as a golden age because it's the age of Coppola, Scorsese. The films were better back then, is what we're always saying. And my era of filmmaking, the 90s, when I was young, and we thought we thought we were going to be in the middle of another special era because we had PTA and Tarantino. And they're looking back to the 70s as well. But we've got all this nostalgia for the 70s when actually, if you watch the films that were made at the time, they they weren't exactly loving life. Do you know what I mean? They were kind of saying, look at the state of things, it's bloody awful. I just thought it was really interesting. And at the same time, people in the 70s were, th- were looking back with nostalgia to a previous era with Rocky and, and, and Happy Days. I'm just wondering, is there is there a comparable era for you, mate? I always ask you to be the spokesman of, of your generation. Oh, I'm but getting do, old, do, man. I'm getting but, too old but, for this shit. <laughs> but, you know, you, you know you're know, you in your 20s. Is there is there an era a couple of decades prior that you look back on as like the great, you know, the, the better time than now? Or does that just not happen anymore? Um... I don't know. I mean, since about 2008, the world's kind of consistently been on fire. <laughs> so since about the age of 12, I've not really, you know, not 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 enjoyed, but we have been living in a fucking cesspit. Um, what about culture and filmmaking, though? Is there an era that you look back on and say, I wish my generation's movies were a bit more like that? Or is, is, is that less of a thing as well? Not really. I think... There's always been good films in every decade and there's been good, you know, there's been good comedians, there's been good TV shows, there's been good things. And I think now there's, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to describe, but I feel like people now are too scared to maybe do certain films because they're scared of offending people. Mm-hmm. And that's something I really hate. And mm-hmm. I, that doesn't mean I want people to go out and make films that are, you know, unnecessarily just offensive or you know, just nasty and, you know, insensitive. But I do I do hate the idea of people not wanting to tell a story about World War Two because it'll be a depiction of the Nazis and they're scared that they're going to, you know, incite another... Like they're going to incite neo-Nazis to do a specific thing, like go to a specific area of the world because we're mm. telling a story about Nazis that hasn't been, you know portrayed in media before. yeah wor- worried kind of about worried about glorifying or, or glamorizing things comedi- and stuff yeah comedians not being able to tell jokes because they're worried they'll get cancelled i think yeah. there's obviously a line where if you're just saying something that's outright offensive and not like there's no actual punchline to it you're just being hurtful and being nasty then i don't think we should be allowing that but I, that, that would be the ca- anything before whenever we started getting really like Mm-hmm. picky and saying oh you you can't do this film or you can't you can't tell this joke like that re- that mm-hmm. really does annoy me so yeah i think for example tropic thunder is a film that would never be made today 
Even though all of its intentions and sentiments yeah, are honourable, people but, people in the audience would agree with the sentiments of the film, and but still be offended by the way the film told it, and not want the film to actually say what it said. So yeah, I think I think there's always like there's good films from the fifties, sixties. There's good films from the decade, but I think obviously back then they would make anything, and sometimes back then it was completely inappropriate, and there were some mm-hmm. things that they probably shouldn't have done, and for example, um, Laurence Olivier blacking up to play Othello, that's not cool. That, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there's, I don't want to say, like, let's go back to the fucking good old dies, but mm-hmm. I'm very much the opinion that if there's a story to tell and it can be done in the right way, we shouldn't be scared to make that film. Yeah, and actually what's happening is you say Tropic Thunder couldn't get made today. I bet lots of people are still watching Tropic Thunder today because of the availability of films in, in, in all sorts of platforms. So it's kind of like the new this this generation can really watch any film from any time, really, can't they? Yeah. And and no, I and I guess and I guess what we found with these these features that we've done so far is that they're all quite interesting barometers of their time. Yeah. Um, and and maybe when when somebody looks back on the films being made in this decade, they'll they will pick out half a dozen as being similar states of the nation address because network definitely addresses the state of the nation. Confessions of a Dangerous Mind kind of talks about the the the, the nature of fame and celebrity and and what people want to watch versus what's good to watch. You know, and and this Jack Tati was commenting on you know a lost time as it were. And we look back on that that era itself as a lost time. So people are always doing this. Um, but yeah, interesting. A, pe- a piece of film history rather than a set of films. But if you are interested in that sort of thing, it's it, it, it hasn't. It's very of its time, and comedy's hard to kind of appreciate later on. But Jacques, Jacques Tati's films, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday and Playtime, are really interesting films for summing up their era and got some interesting stuff in them. If that's your bag. But yeah, this is a strange story, and and you can you can listen to the Sparks song the theme song from the uh from the film which they recorded anyway so a, a weird little rabbit hole for you there if, if you're interested We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake, which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've discussed asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needed to be done right this time. This month, we look at an attempt to revive a very old TV show with all sorts of resources thrown at it, including two of the biggest stars of the day and one of the most successful comedy film writers of all time. The remake Hate Watch for episode 46 is the 2005 version of Bewitched. So James, had you seen this film or heard of this film before we named it for the pod? No, no. Um... (sighs) The the context of this is this is this is two thousand five. This comes out. It felt like between the year two thousand and the year two thousand and nine, they basically tried to remake everything that had ever been made before. They did a new version of it from horror films to everything. There'd been a couple of successful attempts to do what this film had tried to do. Starsky and Hutch is like Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson doing a, a kind of a part up update, part pastiche, part tribute 
of Starsky and Hutch, which people quite liked. The Brady Bunch movie was, which again, these are films that the, the listeners kind of very correctly, astutely picked out. Um, the Brady Bunch movie came out at a similar time. And that the joke of that was the Brady Bunch was this wholesome family show in the 70s that was bollocks then. It was like it portrayed this kind of unrealistic version of sitcom families that was nothing like real life. But people loved it, partly because it was like, oh, imagine if life was that easy. And in the Brady Bunch movie, they sort of leave their TV world and kind of start wandering around the real world. And it's really funny watching happy-go-lucky singing, dancing Brady Bunch in the real, not very pleasant world. But this, I don't know what, I don't know why they thought this was going to be a viable film, but the, the premise is, um, in the movie, they decided to remake the old sitcom Bewitched, and it's going to be a TV remake. But So it's a movie about a TV remake. Will Ferrell's a big movie star. He's having some trouble, hoping this will revive his career. He wants to get a big hit TV show. Nicole Kidman is an actual witch looking to live a normal life among humans and find love and stumbles into the auditions and ends up getting the role of a witch on TV. So the premise is, what if they remade Bewitched, but they actually um, cast a real witch in the role? I probably have to explain Bewitched to you, actually, the old TV show. Yes, I've I've heard of it. I've never never watched it. A- absolutely basic stuff. Big hit show in the sixties, back in the old days. And I think this is where you know all the traditional shows back then were husband wife, two kids, traditional role. Husband goes to work, wife stays at home. You know, lots of shows in the fifties kind of portraying like the the you know the the classic American nuclear family. And Bewitched, for its time, subverted that a little bit because the idea was the your typical American kind of husband, you know, working man character marries this, you know, lovely, pleasant uh, woman who, you know, uh, who turns out to be a witch and that turns his life upside down because his mother-in-law's a witch and, you know, imagine you've got all your troubles with your mother-in-law, but she's got magic powers as well. You know, do you know what I mean? So it was very, very, very gentle, tame comedy, which for its time was a little bit of a subversion of the traditional role because the the man in the family doesn't have the power if if his wife's got, you know, the ability to turn him into a frog. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was very famous that she could twitch her nose and it looked very cute and it meant she had her magic powers. I feel like this could have been a pitch in The Player. Do you remember in the movie The Player that we did last month, people keep sitting down with Tim Robinson saying, it's The Graduate, but 30 years later. Imagine this meets that. Imagine they do this but with this gimmick. And they basically said, imagine they remake Be- Bewitched, but with an actual witch. And I feel like they went, there you go, let's make a movie out of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's weird because... Nora Ephron, I know you're not a fan of rom-coms, are you? But have you seen When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle? I've seen When Harry Met Sally, yeah. So, I mean, basically, Nora, if, if that's not your style of movie, it's not, going to work, it's not going to work for you. But Nora Ephron has a reputation leading up to this film of being a really, really, really good writer, like a top quality comedy writer. Will Ferrell's one of the biggest stars of the day. He's just done Anchorman. He's done a bunch of these other films. Will Ferrell is, is very much the man of the moment. And obviously Nicole Kidman's a big star. So they've really swung for the fences here and said, right, here we go. Um, This is the, you know, we really want to make this work. I think they tried to make this film a number of times. And I think they bring in these big names to try and rescue a project, hoping that they're going to turn it around and make it bigger than it was. What were you expecting? What were you expecting when you you saw this, you know, when you, you know, when you hear the premise and you sit down to watch it, what, what were you expecting to get? 
Not much. I didn't have high expectations of it, and I suppose that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really seem like my kind of thing. So no. if I didn't expect much, I was less likely to be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, I I knew it, I knew it died on its ass at the time, and it's not totally not my thing. So I had low expectations as well. But there, there is an element of it. Does feel like there's a world where where if you get Nora Ephron to write a movie, I know I, I know like I'm on record as not being Nicole Kidman's biggest fan, but I don't mean she's not a good actress. I just don't think she's so good that she should have all the awards coming out of her ears as she is. And this film is why. There's nothing wrong with her in this film, but she's not the kind of person who can elevate or rescue kind of flawed material. Nicole Kidman will be good in a good film, like in Paddington. She's perfectly good in Paddington. In all these other things. Give her a good part. She'll do a good job for your fair play. And if you're a fan of Nicole Kidman, you're probably thinking I'm damning her with, damning her with faint praise. You think she's great. Fine. Nicole Kidman is fine. Yeah, she's. there's nothing wrong with Nicole Kidman. Will Ferrell was the star of the time. Very funny guy. He's also demonstrated in the number of films that he's done, like Stranger and Fiction, that he's, he's, he's happy to go out of his comfort zone. So Nora Ephron writing, Nicole Kidman in it, and Will Ferrell maybe doing something different from what he normally does. There is a, there is a world in which this comes up with something different um but that's not what we get is it what 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 how would you describe what we get as a movie it's a bit a mess to be honest that's what i thought um just i i, I don't know just because i wasn't particularly interested in it that i couldn't really follow it properly but i just found it messy personally. yeah I, I think there's a couple of different ways they could have gone with this i mean if you are going to do it the idea is well maybe Maybe you do a film about a TV set. I mean, Nora Ephron is a writer who has worked on sets. Maybe she could do a comedy about the different, like, competing egos, dealing with executives, all the challenges on set. And she says, I know we're doing Bewitched. I know I know what you want from the movie, but the way I'm going to make this work is that I, Nora Ephron, who know my way around, you know, writing and, and, and shows, will do a film about a TV set. You don't get that. And... Halfway through the film, they almost give up and say, "Will can Will Ferrell just do his Will Ferrell stuff? He says, oh, I wrote a song for you, and he starts doing that Will Ferrell. It's like, oh, I saw he was really funny doing that in Elf. Let's get him to sing to Nicole Kidman. And it's like, there's, 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 no, there's no chemistry between the leads, and that doesn't help. And I feel like it's all... It's all a bit paint by the numbers. I wonder if I wonder if Nora Ephron just had a tax bill or something. She says, yeah, I'll do this. You know, she's credited as writing a script, but it doesn't feel like she's given it anything. They haven't, like, given Will Ferrell anything different to do. And Nicole Kidman turns up and, you know, she doesn't do anything wrong. But, you know, there's nothing going on. I mean, literally, but they don't really progress any further than that basic idea. What if they, make a, what if they did a TV show about a witch with a mate, with, and then actually cast a witch to play it? That is literally all they've got. Um, But... It, it, it is what it is. You, they, 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 if they'd really gone in for the rom-com stuff, you probably wouldn't have enjoyed that either. But at least it, if they'd really, they could have tried to make it fully work as a rom-com. Because they don't. It, it's not really enough of anything, is it? Yeah, yeah. That's the best way to put it. It's not enough of anything. It's just a lot of different messy parts. Yeah, they throw, they throw in a few things like Will Ferrell plays a, a real kind of spoiled dickhead actor. So yeah. may, maybe he maybe finding love makes him a better person. It's a massive cliche, but a number of rom-coms have done that and, and it's worked, you know? Um, they could have, I mean, they could have done gone more into kind of the magic, you know, the, 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 the witchcraft angle. They don't really do that either. 
Um, but you know, have, have you seen Stranger Than Fiction, by the way? Um, no. But I think you know the idea. Yeah, I know the idea. It's very meta. It's the sort of thing you'd have thought Charlie Kaufman would write, although it wasn't actually him writing it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just you just sort of go eh, whatever. It's it's just it's just a shame they spent as much money as they did and died on their ass doing it. But it kind of I almost I almost want to blow past it and say, look, the reason this film went wrong was they didn't actually develop the idea beyond the basic premise. Um, if they'd let Nora Ephron do a full-on rom-com, I mean, would would Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman do the same job as Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan? I don't know, but I'd I'd be happy to see it. I'd, Probably I'd, not. No. But I'd I'd happy to see them give it a go. You know. You know, like, I mean, whether, I mean, I'm not a big fan of rom-coms either, but when Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are on the screen together, it's like watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing. Do you know what I mean? Even if it's not your thing, you've got to admire the brilliance on on, on display, you know? Yeah. But it's not a rom-com. It's not a spoof of television. It's not a film about an actual witch or anything. I mean, that could have been quite fun. You could have had some conflict with a bad witch or anything like that. But no, you know. It's 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 weird. It's weird. I mean, and and the fact is that the, the the template for making that work does exist. I mean, I, when I, when I read the listeners' comments, I went, oh, "You're absolutely spot on." Brady Bunch and Starsky and Hutch, maybe maybe Bewitched is just too old. I mean, I I remember seeing Bewitched on repeats when I was a kid and going, "Oh, this is old." Do you know what I mean? So so seeing yeah. that redone in the year two thousands, I don't know. It's it does it doesn't go anywhere. It's. It probably looks all the worse when you just see a thing like Barbie, when it's like, what if this thing turned out to be real? Do you know what I mean? What if this thing turned out to be real has just been done as probably as good as it ever could be with Barbie? And you think, see this and go, despite the quality of people involved, it's not It's not a bad cast. Michael Caine, Shirley MacLaine, Jason Schwartzman, there's decent actors in this, but it all, just a, it's a huge damp squib, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, to blow past that and talk about the remake restoration, the film we'd like to see remade, uh, on you know, I nominated this The Running Man, and that's partly because it's it's about television. The 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 premise of the film is that everything that happens is being broadcast on television, and it's obviously a, a commentary on, on the television network. But in terms of you seen The Running Man, the film The Running Man? No, but I know it's the one with Arnold Schwartz. So you haven't seen this. See, this is, I mean, this is, there's a definite kind of generation gap going on here. Um, and we obviously have a literal generation gap because I'm your dad. Um, <laughs> but what, what's your history with Arnie generally, Ar- Arnie films? I mean, by the time you're becoming media aware, he's kind of an ex-actor who's gone into politics, right? Yeah, so for me, like, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is that, you know, the Terminator and he's uh, the... He's in Predator, and he's been in films like Total Recall, and he's very much a kind of one-dimensional action star. That's that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. How, how does his persona play out to you? The one-liners, the I'll be back, you know, in Terminator 2, my axis doesn't work, let me throw in mine, and he just blows the thing up. You know, that, that was the spirit of the age for me in the late 80s, early 90s. Arnie doing it, you know, however cheesy it was, Arnie doing his thing was very much of its time. How did that come across to you, coming to it later um yeah i mean it's still funny it's still uh it still lands in terms of like like it, with its intention of oh this this man of few words and a kind of 
goofy Austrian accent, it's still kind of, it's still funny now, and it, it always will be funny, but it, it's not funny for 14 films. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I, w- I wonder if the Arnie film that might therefore play the best for you, which I'm not sure if you've even seen, is Commando. Okay. Because Commando has got its tongue firmly in its cheek. It is at, it's, it's gloriously taken the piss out of itself. The villain is hugely camp and may well be in love with Arnie. Um, there's a brilliant like supporting performance by an actress called Raydorn Chong, who when there's a bit where, you know Bill Duke? He's the bald black guy from Predator. Yeah. Mac. Well, he's he's a villain who has a fight with with Arnie, and there's this scene where they're smashing up a hotel room, beating each other up in classic like beefy action movie style, and and Bill Duke says, "This green beret is going to kick your ass." And Arnie goes, "I eat green berets for breakfast, and now I'm really hungry." And Radon Chong's watching this from behind a from behind a pillar, trying not to get shotgun. You guys eat far too much red meat. Do you know what I mean? So it's taking the piss out of itself in this really funny way. And it's not good, right? There, there are bits where he throws a grenade and you can see the um, the automated seesaws that are flipping the guys over who've been blown up by the grenade. It's as cheesy as all mm-hmm. hell, but it's it's taking the piss out of itself in this really beautiful world. That, that's the way when he's holding a guy over a cliff and he goes, do you remember when I said I'd kill you last? I lied and drops him, right? A lot of fun. But that's... There's, there's a watershed with Arnie. 1987 with The Running Man is the last time Arnie made that kind of film because after that, he does Predator, which is like a big successful action film. And it's that's got like a tongue-in-cheek element, but, you know, the, the action's much more serious. He d- then starts to do more family-oriented stuff like Twins and Kindergarten Cop. He comes back with like, you know, Terminator 2 and makes him the biggest star in the world. But Arnie's, you know, he's not doing exploitation cinema anymore. And The Running Man is kind of the last film he did like that. It's, it looks like slightly low-budget sci-fi. Um the, the fun thing about this is that he, his character in this sort of totalitarian future gets arrested for a crime he didn't commit and forced to compete on a TV show um, where characters with colourful names chase them down and, 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 and if you don't get killed, you get a million dollars kind of thing or a load of money. Um, and this was meant to be a satire on the state of American television. And you know how American television responded to that? They basically used that premise for gladiators. Oh, good. Now, I'm I'm slightly I'm slightly misleading in my interpretation of that. That's how I remember it because in 1987 this film comes out, and then a couple of years later, a show called American Gladiator comes out, where the contestants are wearing almost identical costumes to what Arnie's wearing, and the people trying to hunt them down are called things like Nitro and Viper, and it's like that's just the same fucking thing. But apparently, yeah. apparently that idea was already in the works. But it does mean that that's what American TV was like at the time and what this film was kind of um, going for. Now, the reason I've suggested a remake for this is this is actually based on a novel. Have you heard of Richard Bachman? No. Have you heard of Stephen King? Yes. Silly question. Richard Bachman was the, the pen name that Stephen King used to write some other books. Okay. He was writing these other books because he wasn't sure if... Um, people would accept him writing non-horror stories. Yeah, fans of Stephen King works wouldn't like the idea of non-Stephen King works. And you can see how hard Stephen King has like worked to like uh, stop being pigeonholed. He still writes horror, but he wants to write a variety of things. And that's why you've got The Green Mile, The Shawshank Redemption, Misery, where he's go, even Misery is horror, but it's, it's he's, he was trying very hard to go off in a different direction. So he wrote these books under the pseudonym Richard Bachman. 
Okay. It's, I, I was reminded of this by the, because eventually it became a millstone around his neck because people are going, who wrote this? Who wrote this? And, you know, and, and eventually someone kind of outed him, not in a bad way, just said, look, I think this is you. Um, he wrote to him and said, I don't, I don't want to tell anyone. I just, I've got to know, is this you? This is, you know, so Stephen King said, yeah, it's me and came out and admitted that he'd been writing under a pseudonym. And, and uh, later on, he wrote a horror book about a guy whose pen name takes over his life. Um, I was reminded of that when American Fiction uh, came out recently, because it's it's a fun premise. But anyway, Richard Backman, he wrote a series of books, and The Running Man was one of his books. Now, they changed it for the movie to make it an Arnie film. And I like the Arnie film. It's a lot of fun. It's got Yafet Koto in a, um, in a jumpsuit, what's not to like, you know? Um, it's futuristic. It's cheesy. Arnie gets to shoot lots of people and kick, kick lots of ass. And it does retain a satirical element. It does retain a dystopian kind of sci-fi world, so it's got some good stuff in it. But the book is very different. Um, in in the TV show, it becomes a game show on the set, basically the set of Gladiators. In the book, the idea is it's the future, it's grim. The central character hasn't had work in ages. His his daughter, I think it's his daughter, is really ill and will die without um, uh, treatment. But healthcare is completely unaffordable. Stephen King was right on the money. His wife is having to actually do sex work to pay the bills because there's no jobs for him. So he's absolutely sort of, he's being destroyed, this guy. And he, he, he gets to go on The Running Man, which is the big game show of the day. TV is being used as a distraction to keep people from thinking about the horror of their daily lives, right? It's quite bleak and also quite true to life. But in the show The Running Man, what he has to do is he has to go on the run across America. And the hunters are got to hunt him down and kill him. And what he has to do is he has to um, he has to release videos um, uh, like statements, you know, saying where I am. You know, he's not allowed to say where he is, but he's got to release. He's got to film videos and send them in so that they've got clues as to where he is, and the postmark will say where he is because this is the nineteen eighties. I didn't have anything else. Um, and the videos might show like landmarks behind them, and the hunters are chasing them down and going to kill them. And you get paid money for every day you uh, don't get caught and don't get killed and you get paid for every hunter you kill and every law enforcement officer you kill who's trying to arrest you uh, and if you stay alive for 30 days you win prize money of a billion dollars and in the end the main character realizes he's been double crossed and decides to take complete revenge on the people who ran the studio and the political resistance start following him because he becomes like a hero and they don't like the fact that he's that he's being supported by the people at home because they want the people at home to root for the hunters to kill the contestants and then it's got this really bleak violent ending which i don't want to spoil because this film might actually get made and all people might read the book um it's very different what, what what do you think of that as a storyline? How does that resemble modern television to you? Um, it's got a very Squid Game kind of vibe, but not as Squid Game's not as televised. Yeah, I mean that that's one of the things about this. This this book has been used by a number of people already for inspirations to make this film. There's always a danger with stories like that, isn't there? When they've been used for films already, how fresh is it going to look if you do it again? Yeah. That, that that would be a kind of concern. I mean, to be honest, although it, it does have that kind of you get prize money, but you are at risk of death at every, you know, every kind of minute of the time you're on the show, That that's still a relatively new, or not new, unique idea, I think. I can't think of many other 
films or TV shows off the top of my head um, that have that kind of plot, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, they. they I don't think there's been any films that have this plot, but they have actually made this idea into into a show. There is. I don't know. I, I don't know if they've got this in America yet, but here in the UK, we have a show called Hunted, where contestants are being chased by XSAS guys, and and they, you know, and they get they're being tracked wherever they go, and it's a case of how long you can survive. So, the the, the my my nervousness about this is that a lot of what they've done in the book has actually been done in real life because if you do an accurate satire on what on what the TV show what the TV companies would do they're probably going to steal your idea <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah. um but it is really bleak i mean it's a very bleak depiction of of america and society and it's got an absolutely killer ending an unbelievably bleak ending look it up look up the wikipedia ending of that and think wow you'd have to have some balls to do that ending um but I really like it. I think it's the sort of thing where you could kind of, uh, I think you could comment on today's society with it, and I think you could comment on today's media with it. You would have to update the uh, the mechanics because you know people don't post things anymore, partly because we hate the post office. Um, yes. You know, but, but you'd be tracking people according to your phone. Do you know what I mean? People would be people would go on social media going, "I've just seen the guy." Do you know what I mean? And other people would be saying, "Fuck you! Don't give him away to the to the to the hunters," kind of thing. And the, the resistance that have decided to use this guy as their political tool, they would have to find other ways to make it harder for the hunters to find him. But I think everything's there. I mean, it could definitely be the sort of thing that's set in the near future because you already have the situation where people in America are sick and dying and can't afford healthcare. Do you know what I mean? And you've got television shows that are this exploitative. And the only reason they haven't started killing people on TV is because it's the one thing that they're not allowed to do. But if that was allowed, that would happen on every fucking show after nine PM on American television, you know? Yeah, no. It's, thing is, what you've just said there is kind of what I tied into um, earlier about not being scared to make films. If the, if the ending's bleak, the ending's bleak. You know, we can, we have um, you know video games where you can fucking you can do all sorts. You know, like Call of Duty, you're you are literally shooting people and killing them. But well. Or too scared of an ending and I think that's what we need we need someone to make a film that has a bleak ending and don't give a shit about the kind of backlash of having a bleak ending and telling that story do you know what I mean? Yeah I mean so I, I agree with you I think this would be good and, and you know the, the only issue for me is you've got you know Black Mirror and you know actual TV shows and, and all of these other things Squid Game uh, you know actual reality shows that, that have borrowed from this idea Squid Game which is a very successful that's yeah. bleak. Yeah, successful and bleak. But you know, South Koreans aren't afraid of bleak on their on their shows. I mean, and, and their shows are often sort of very dark commentaries on their own society. I mean, Parasite is not just about the families involved. It's about the state of Korea. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's how South Korean classism, like classism, yeah. is that a word? Like that kind of yeah attitudes to people that have money, don't have money or whatever is, is, is a thing. But I, I would like this to be made and if it has a bleak ending it does i mean have i ever told you about the time we were um, at school this is a bit of a tangent anecdote where we watched the boy in the striped pajamas um, yeah have i told you this so we watched the boy in the striped pajamas in, uh, you know in, 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 in school yeah yeah and it was like the it was like the, the last day before we went on um summer the summer holidays so it was you know the, the teachers have given up by that point they didn't give a shit we're all wearing no we're not wearing uniform anyway so the teacher puts on boy in the striped pajamas and Oh, have you seen the boy in the striped pajamas? Yes, I have. Yeah, that—that's a fucking bleak ending if I've ever fucking seen one. Yeah. Um. 
so the, the ending happens and two children are killed and murdered in the uh, the gas chambers teacher turns off and goes have a nice holiday <laughs> like what the fuck yeah and, and that's and, and the thing is if you're going to do a show like that do you know how people start to get annoyed now because you, you have these TV shows where to stop you switching over before the next program or switching over during the commercial break they show you a little infographic of what the next show is Next time. And like Graham Norton like started complaining because their infographic of the Graham Norton show was like a little caricature cartoon of him dancing across the screen going, ah, I'm on next, right? Which is fine if the film before it isn't like really serious, like fucking Schindler's List or something. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's like, yeah. it's and you could have something in this where someone's about to be killed or caught in the show and then you've got like uh, the, you know, coming up next, you know, uh, uh all, all in, in jazzy stuff, in, in the same way that Starship Troopers had this really jazzy multimedia television coverage of people being brutally killed in 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 the, in the bug wars. Um, so, notwithstanding some concerns that you know Black Mirror and a number of other shows that kind of followed it, I think there is there, there is an argument for this. And guess what? Lots of fun. We could be getting this movie in twenty twenty five. Oh, good. Edgar Wright is planning to direct it. Oh, good. Now. I've liked a lot of Edgar Wright's films. I didn't think the I didn't think um, the World's End ended all that well, ironically. And I I loved film. I loved Last Night in Soho for about two thirds of it, and then I thought it fell apart. However, this is the guy who did Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, and Baby Driver. Right? Baby so, Driver was excellent. Like as much as I love Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. Um, I think Baby Driver doesn't get spoken about enough as one of his you know, one of the best works of this century, and also one of Edgar Wright's best works. It is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely, I think uh, Kevin Spacey being there doesn't help. But yeah, yeah, that's the way it goes. But I mean, basically, Alfred Hitchcock put put his finger on this way back in the days. So there comes a point where you hit a ceiling in British film, and if you know, and lots of filmmakers have found this. Uh, you know, British actors and directors and writers have found this. Ridley Scott did the same. There comes a point where if you want to take things up to the next level, you need American resources. And Baby Driver is everything Edgar Wright can do on American resources, right? So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, he's going to be in it. There's not necessarily any discussion about who's going to be in it just now. Um, but he's he's been a fan of that. He likes the original film, but he, he wants to do something that's more like the book. Um, they're working on the scripts and no um, no actors yet or anything. Um, who, who do you think would be good for this? I mean, it's basically any kind of every man who can kind of, you know, Pedro Pascal sprang to mind just because Pedro Pascal's good in everything he does. But I mean, he's meant to be an every man, not Arnie. So it's going to be that kind of actor. He, he can't be too much of an action star in his own yeah, right. It can't be someone like Henry Cavill, just because he, yeah, that's he's, basically Arnie, but today he, like he's got he's guy. got to be an underdog guy. But yeah, I tr I trust Edgar Wright with his casting. I mean, for for one thing, Ooh. there was nothing wrong with his casting last night. So every character was superb, um, and and he, he's not going to have a problem with the ending if he sticks to the book. The end, you know, for all for all people sometimes criticise Stephen King for not not knowing how to end his stories. He fucking well knew how to end The Running Man. <laughs> I can just tell you that um, for nothing. Um, so yeah, I'd like to see this. I'd like to see this. Uh, so maybe maybe this remake that we're asking for is actually going to happen. Even though 2025 is not very far away, a lot can go wrong, as we all know, with film production uh, where projects don't happen. But we might just see this one, and that would be cool.
That's all for this month's Double Reel Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Gateway by Kevin McLeod. You can rent or buy Confessions of a Dangerous Mind digitally on Apple TV, Amazon and Sky. If you're old school, you can buy the disc or even read the original book. The story of Jacques Tati's confusion is told in various online articles and you can listen to the intended theme song from the film by Sparks. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we'll be bringing you our best films of the 2010s. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.